friendly and wonderful to each other. We have missed you. We've had a wonderful holiday, but we're glad to be back. It's glad to see all your smiley faces. Uh, if you are able to move forward, then come, come into the fold of the sheep pen. I know, you've missed me too. Okay. Did anyone get up to anything exciting yesterday? Joel did. What did you get up to? The circus. Awesome. Oh, I'm going to ask you about that later on. The circus. Anyone else? Anyone? Say it again. Tackle Belt. Where is this? They went to Glasgow to, see, to, to go to Taco Bell. I saw that on Facebook and I was like, where even is Taco Bell? Awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry, husband. Aww. We did. It was a lovely time. Uh, so our kids have left us for a few days. They've gone off to Soul Survivor. Hence, lots of empty seats. A lot of our young people have headed off. Your prayers are appreciated for them. Wouldn't it be incredible if they all met with the Lord in a profound way and knew exactly who they were in Jesus? Let's pray for that. Uh, Saturday morning used to look like this for me. Can we have the next slide? Anyone else? Saturday morning TV? Getting up before your parents? sitting in front of the TV with a bowl of cereal, watching cartoons. Was this anyone else's Saturday morning? You're all not going to show... One hand. Excellent. Okay. Two hands. Awesome. Saturday morning telly. I disclose a lot about myself up here, don't I? Saturday, mor <laughs> Saturday morning telly was one of the best things for me because your parents were still in bed, but you were watching telly, and you could eat as much cereal as you wanted. Uh, Hands up if you remember any of the Saturday morning cartoons. Come on, Lorna. Oh, yes. Yes. Hands up if you remember He-Man. Thundercats. Was anyone a Thundercats fan? Yes. Uh, what else? What else? Oh, Scooby-Doo. There's some up there. There's some up there that, or there's some not up there that were just awesome. But Saturday morning telly, my favorite show with my brother was Transformers. Anyone remember it? Transformers. <laughs> Robots in disguise. Yes. Did you love it? Only a few people. Okay. I may have lost half the room already, but the reason I mention this is because Transformers were one thing when you looked at them, but then they changed into a completely other thing halfway through. You see, these robots were at war with another kind of robot. The Autobots versus the Decepticons, yes, bit of a geek. Were, were, they brought their war to Earth and only one boy, can you remember the theme tune? Only one boy can save the planet, which was Sam. Anyway, I digress. The Transformers, their theme tune was this. Transformers more than meets the eye. Transformers, robots in disguise. And when I've been reading this passage, right, kid you not, this theme tune has been going round and round in my head. And you have to ask the Lord, what on earth are you talking about, right? Hence why this talk is called More Than Meets the Eye. Because isn't it true that you look at things in life and they look like one thing? But when you bring God into those situations, they become something completely different. You see, we serve a God who is a transformational God. A God who, when we invite him into situations, our situation looked like one thing, 
and then suddenly become something completely different. And that's what Paul's talking about in his letter this morning that we're going to read. So we are in a series called Weak But Strong, because when we are weak, God is strong. That's when he gets to show his grace and his mercy and his love and his goodness and his kindness and his awesomeness is in amongst our weakness. And so actually when we show our weakness, it's a powerful thing. And so that's why we're reading 2 Corinthians. And just as a little recap, we do it each week for those of us that either have short memories or haven't been here for this series, is that Paul is this guy who profoundly met with Jesus. Come and join me, John. Oh, yes. Awesome. John is our Bible monitor this morning. Give him a cheer. Love it. Keen Bean John. We haven't even opened the word yet, and he's there. I love it. We should all be this keen to open God's word. Literally, is there anyone else that wants a Bible? No? Okay. Uh, Paul is this guy who profoundly meets with Jesus and is transformed from someone who hated uh, Christians, people who followed the way, people who followed Jesus, literally persecuted them, murdered them, and he is transformed by an encounter with the Lord into a guy who shares God's word powerfully and it changes people. He's written to the Corinthian church off the back of quite a difficult situation and so this letter so far has brought us quite a few challenges, hasn't it? Anyone else feeling challenged by this letter? There's quite a few moments where Paul just cuts right to the core of our hearts and this one is no different. And so we are turning to the last quarter of the Bible. If you have one of our Bibles there, you are turning to page 1163. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 is where we're starting from. And it says this. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, and we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said this before, that you have such a place in our hearts, that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all of our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside and fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. 
So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are greatly encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because this spirit has been his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when, we rem when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad that I can have complete confidence in you. Amen. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word changes us, that your word challenges us, that your word aligns us with you. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would land truths into our hearts. Jesus, that you would share exactly what you want to share with every single one of us. Would it be your words that leave my mouth this morning? Amen. And so I find this concept really interesting that Paul points out, godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Like, what is that? How do we get it? How do we do it? How does it become a thing? And so that's what we're going to look at uh, with the light, the filter of a transformational God. Okay, so keep that in your mind. The first thing that I can see here is that godly sorrow is kind. It's kind. You can see the softness of Paul's heart here, can't you? When he first starts talking to them, he talks to them about how proud he is of them and about how he would live or die with them and how encouraged he is by them. Bearing in mind that the backdrop to this is that Paul started this church with these people. They literally did church together, a bit like we're doing right now. We're all playing our part. We're all doing our thing. And so they loved one another. They had such a closeness with one another. And then as Paul left and went to plant more and more churches, he started to hear that things weren't so great and that they'd just gone offline a little bit and that there was a situation in their church that they were choosing not to deal with. And so that's the backdrop. He's challenging them and saying, there's a situation here and you need to deal with it. So the letter, the letter leading up to this point is all about that. And at this point, you can imagine when he's saying, I'm harassed at every turn, this has been stressful. You know, if this was my reaction, I'd be saying, what are you doing, guys? Like, come on. Do you not understand how harassed I am, how difficult this is for me? Wouldn't that be our human reaction? We would be doing it out of exasperation. But God turns our exasperation, he turns our frustration into kindness when we let him. Kindness and a soft heart, it's a masterclass on how to love people really well. For me, when I look at this whole letter as one, but particularly when you look at this little middle part, it's like Paul is aligning us to what Jesus says uh, on how to deal with conflict. And we're going to go on and speak about that in a moment. But he's aligning us to Jesus. He's reminding us, guys, we're going to encourage one another. This is what our relationship is. Before I go on to say anything else, this is how much I love you. I would live or die by you. He could have chosen not to raise it, 
Lots of us do this, don't we? Lots of us see something happening, or we see something in someone that could undermine them, or something that concerns us about someone, and we choose not to raise it as an issue. Why? Because we don't want to be misunderstood. We don't want to hurt someone. We don't want the relationship to be fractured, and so we choose not to, don't we? It's quite a, a normal thing. I think we all do this. But the problem when we do that, when we don't deal with an issue that is right in front of us, is it can be quite devastating. Back in 2001, there was a group of people <clears throat> who were responsible for the flood alleviation system around Philadelphia um, and Florida. And these people began to report that the flood alleviation system was not great, and actually that they were only one disaster away from complete devastation. The trouble is that the people that they were reporting them to was the press. And so for three years solid, they reported our flood allevi alleviation system is rubbish. It's not working. You know, the government, they're not doing their thing. They're not playing their part. What's going on? And then 2005 happens. Hurricane Katrina. Utter devastation. Now, at this point, I'm going to put in a caveat of I was not there. I don't know what the government said at the time. And I probably don't under this understand this situation. So if you're sat there and thinking that's not actually what happened, I'm just using it as an illustration, guys. But at this point, lots of these people were saying, we've been saying this for years and no one did anything. But isn't it interesting that there was utter devastation, lives lost, 1,800 lives lost, $125 billion spent fixing the problem. You see, when we choose not to share our information with the right person, or the person who can make the difference, who can change things, when we choose to keep it to ourselves, I understand that they didn't, they did report it. There's devastation that can happen if we choose to sit on stuff for fear of our reputation being damaged for fear of our relationship breaking down. It can be even more devastating. Uh, Willow Creek is a, a big church in America and they are really hot on teaching on conflict resolution. They are, they've provided lots of resources on the Matthew 18 principle. Matthew 18 is where Jesus talks to the disciples about how to deal with things and how to deal with them well in love about how to go directly to a person if they've offended you, or if you see something in them that you're concerned about, do it confidential, confidentially, do, deal with the person, don't share it with 100 people before you then go to the person. Uh, and Willow Creek have said this, when people submerge their true feelings to preserve harmony, they undermine the integrity of a relationship. They buy peace on the surface, but underneath there are hurt feelings troubling questions, and hidden hostilities just waiting to erupt. It's a costly price to pay, to pay sorry, for a cheap peace, and it inevitably leads to inauthentic relationships. Church, we want authentic relationships, don't we? We want authentic relationships with one another, with our families, with our friends. We want the kind of relationships that Jesus shows us because how else is the world going to know him? If we continue to hide things, if we continue to choose not to deal with things, or we continue to deal with them but in an unkind way, it's not showing Jesus, is it? 
So what Paul is demonstrating here is a kindness that only God can have brought. And so my encouragement to you this morning is if you've got an issue with someone, if there's something unsettling you, if there's someone that has been unkind to you, if there has been an injustice in your life, bring it to God. He's the one that can guide you. He's the one that can change your hurt into kindness and a soft heart. There's more than meets the eye. God changes things. There is a practical, I think we maybe skipped past it, a practical hint that Willow Creek have uh, produced. There are four tips on how to go after that. I always like a little practical moment. And so here are four things. Are you ready? The first thing, if you have a concern or an issue that you would like to raise with someone is identify the real issue. That's what Paul does here. He doesn't list the many things that I'm sure he was cross with. He doesn't list all of the other things. Well, actually, six months ago, you also did this. He doesn't do that. What he does is he affirms the relationship and he goes after the real obstacle. The second thing is arrange a face-to-face. Now, I'm sure Paul may have tried to do this, but given that he was about 800 miles away at the time, letter was his uh, way of, of communicating with them. One of the things that I say to our leaders all the time is never, ever, ever deal with anything that could be slightly negative or perceived as slightly negative over text. Just don't do it. Because there's no tone to be heard. You can't understand what the heart behind it was. Face-to-face is the kindest way to go. Affirm the relationship first, just like Paul has. Tell that person. Like, why is it important to you? Why are you bringing it in the first place? It's because you love them. Tell them that. And then the fourth thing is make an observation, not an accusation. So it's about, I've noticed this in you. This is what I think that looks like. Did you mean that? Not, you're such a nightmare. You do this all the time. You did it six months ago as well, and I hate that. Just be kind. The only way you can do that when you're really cross with something or you're hurt or disappointed by something is bringing it to God first. He's the one that transforms things. The second thing that I can see in this part of this letter is that godly sorrow is productive. You can see he lists a bunch of things. You see what godly sorrow has produced in you. It has produced earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, and a readiness to see justice. It's productive. Things happen when you bring things to Jesus. He produces something in that moment. He transforms something within you. There's a phrase that goes around church leadership a lot. Focus on healthy things because healthy things grow. So focus on the thing that's healthy because they grow. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I would challenge it a little bit because also coming from a nursing background like Mary, it's not always healthy things that grow. Unhealthy things grow too. Let's just think about E. coli for a moment. It grows massively, doesn't it? Pretty quickly. If you don't reheat your rice right, that's it. You're going to have food poisoning. Yes, am I right? Give it the right environment within your body, it's going to make you pretty ill, isn't it? You're going to be sick and many other not nice symptoms. We won't go into all of that. Food poisoning affected 20,000 people in this last year in the UK, and those are only the people who were recorded as having gone to the doctor, and 500 of those people died. That's just from one little bug that multiplied massively within something, within someone's body. My point is, guys, unhealthy things grow too. If we give them space in our lives, 
if we let them sit dormant, then they'll grow too. You give them the right environment, and they'll grow, and they'll become poisonous, and they can lead to death. And at this point, when you read the commentaries on Paul's letter, they often draw a comparison to Peter and Judas Iscariot. So these are two disciples, two of the people who Jesus chose to walk and talk and teach with, two people who loved him, two people who heard exactly the same thing, and yet two people who the end of their life turned out quite differently, didn't they? So you may not know, you may not have been around church for a little while, but Peter is the guy who denies Jesus three times. Jesus knows it's going to happen, in fact he predicts it. Peter walks away because he doesn't want to be seen as being with Jesus. He doesn't want the same uh, persecution, persecution as Jesus has. Okay, so he denies him three times. Then Jesus dies. Judas Iscariot, also a disciple, also denies Jesus. Goes and speaks to the guys who are trying to kill Jesus and gets paid money to point Jesus out in the crowd. Okay, so you've got two people who are the same. They came from the same... Um, group, the same teaching, they heard Jesus say the same things, they loved him, and they both did the same thing, same sin. What's the difference? The difference is where they went after they'd done something wrong. Those commentaries say it's it's where they went to church, that's the difference. Who did they go to when they realized the horrificness of what they'd done? Peter goes back to the disciples. He goes back, he repents, he weeps, in fact, with them. And you can read the, this in, in most of the Gospels. Matthew does a really good account of it. Judas Iscariot realizes, I've done something horrific. Where does he go? He goes back to the people who told him to do it in the first place. And their account in Matthew 27, he goes to them and says, I've done something awful. I wish I hadn't done it. I don't want this money. And what do they say? That's your problem. You fix it. That's your issue. It's hopeless. There's despair. He can't fix it. There's only one person that can fix it. And he's too scared and filled with shame and filled with guilt to go back to the one person or the one group of people who can change it for him. And so in Matthew 27, what you read is he puts down the money He walks out and he hangs himself. Two people, same sin, same background, very different way of dealing with it. I can't even imagine how hopeless your life could be to be in that situation. But I do know that there are many people who have situations that feel completely hopeless to them. Church, it's our job to point them to Jesus. We are the church. We are the people who can bring hope into hopelessness. We are the people who can show people that there is another way. There is nothing that separates you from Jesus. There is nothing too big. There is no sin too great. Nothing. So whilst you're all sitting there and you're thinking, ah, but actually I know I've done this. Or I know my life has looked like this and I know the Bible says my life shouldn't look like that. Whatever that is, it is not too big for Jesus. He did it for you. 
I want everyone to say that, he did it for me. He did it for me. He did it for me. Say it again and again. He did it for me. Jesus died for you. He died for me. So that sin and shame could no longer separate us from God. And so when we have a moment in our lives where there is disappointment, where there is hurt, where there is pain, where there is frustration and anger, what do we do with it? We take it to Jesus. We surround ourselves with people who will continually take it to Jesus on our behalf. Godly sorrow is productive. It says here that it leads them to repentance. Both of these guys repented. Both of them were gutted about what they'd done. And yet only one of them was able to bring it to Jesus to make his salvation happen. Guys, this is such an important point. I wish I could talk about it more, but I'm going to have to move on. It's so important that we remember that when we are kind instead of what the earthly feeling within us, the humanly feeling within us happens, when we are kind and we take it to Jesus, something happens. He transforms our pain. He transforms our hurt into kindness and production. And from that place, it reproduces. You can see that in this letter when Paul talks about how he had told Titus how incredible these Corinthians were. So Paul had spent over a year with these guys. He'd done life with them, literally done life with them. He loved them and he talked over and over and over to Titus about how incredible they all are. And so you can imagine his joy when Titus comes back and says exactly that. They're incredible. They're still going for Jesus. They're so kind they looked after me. So Paul boasts about them and Titus has exactly the same experience. Titus comes back and tells Paul and then he is encouraged. You can see the circle of encouragement. Encouragement is so incredibly powerful. It comes from a place of Jesus. It comes from God, doesn't it? That's his heart for us. His heart for us is to love us and encourage us and inspire us. And isn't it amazing that he asks us to walk alongside him? You know, Lorna this morning when she was praying with us at team time said, do you know, God doesn't need us. He doesn't. He's a powerful God. He can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need us to journey with him. He doesn't need us to come here at half past eight and unload the van. He doesn't need us to set up all of this stuff. He doesn't need us to practice our preach before we come and do it. He doesn't need us to get on our knees before him and tell him how incredibly weak we feel before we, before we speak in front of you guys. But he wants us to. He chooses us. He has chosen every one of you. He wants to journey with you. He wants to show you his incredible kindness. He wants to transform your hurt and your pain and heal you. And he wants to love on you. I'll finish with this. Julie Forbes, our site pastor from West, came and preached a couple of weeks ago, more than a couple of weeks ago now, uh, about us being ambassadors for Christ. And how do we pass on Christ-likeness to others? And if you were here, I'm sure you'll remember it because she pulled, literally pulled batons out of a bag and passed them on to people. But one of the stories she shared was so powerful that I thought I would share it again. Julie, when she was a student, lived in a flat that was freezing. 
as we all did when we were students, because heating is secondary. Uh, and she ate lots of student food, which is not very much. But the church that she went to and found love in did a student lunch every single Sunday. And so every Sunday she would find a place on a sofa in someone's house where it was warm, a place where she could have nice food, and a place where she felt loved and accepted. And so she went back every single week. And then eventually, a number of weeks go by, and she realizes that there are new people coming. There are more and more people coming to this. And eventually what she hears is her name being called from the kitchen. And the person who's hosting these lunches takes her into the kitchen and says, Julie, you've been coming here for a little while. We love you. You're part of the team. And she hands her a tea towel and says, there's jobs to be done. That's what Jesus does for us. He is kind. He brings us to a place of repentance. He saves us from the guilt and the shame that we have in our lives. He loves on us. He heals us. And then he passes on the baton and says, go and do it to someone else. Go and pass on my kindness to someone else. Go and love someone else like I have loved you. And church, that's what we want to do, isn't it? Can you imagine a world where everyone in your life who doesn't yet know Jesus experiences the love of Jesus just by the way we're acting? Can you imagine Ellen and Pitt Medan and Newborough and Mintlaw and Old Deer and New Deer and Tarvis and Methlick and all the other places that I may have missed being completely transformed by the love of Jesus? How's it going to happen? By us passing on what we experience in this place. It cannot live within the four walls of this building. And so let's believe and trust in a God who transforms everything in our lives so that it can be productive and so that it can reproduce. Let's stand.